Well, it's a joy to welcome in uh, not only those of you who are gathered in the room, but uh, others who are joining us live on the web. We're glad that you take part in worship. If you can't be present with us, it's good that you can uh, take part online. So thanks for doing that. We are today concluding a series that's carried us through a couple of months as we've been talking about learning to live a God-centered life. And I'll just tell you that uh, I was thinking about, uh, as I was about to come up and preach the, the first service, something that a fellow commented to me a few years ago who visited our church. And he just said, now, preacher, I'm going to tell you straight up. If I'm going to come and listen to you preach, I've got to be able to apply what you taught me by the time I'm driving home from church. So if you can't give me something that's that practical, I'm not coming back. So that's a pretty high standard right there. I don't know that I can measure up to that every week. But I can tell you that today is going to be one of those messages. This is not going to be hard to get your your hands or your mind around. This is going to be very straightforward, practical stuff. We, we've been talking about in the first six of the last seven weeks really thinking more from like a personal and individual perspective. How do I live? How do you live a truly God-centered life? Where God isn't just a slice of your life. That, that your activity, your thinking, your whole life revolves around God. What He's saying and what He's doing. And last week, we then began to transition that and say, okay, now let's think beyond just, okay, how do I try and live a God-centered life to how do we take part in a church that is truly God-centered so that as a body... We're not just going through the motions and, and used to a normal routine, but that the whole church family is really responsive to what God is saying and doing and stays centered on that. And now today as we wrap up, we're going to take this one other critical place, and that is to think about a God-centered family. How do you have a family unit that is truly together centered on what God is saying and doing? Because I, I would suggest this to you that it's pretty much somewhere between difficult and impossible for you individually to do what we're talking about if you in fact live in a family and your family is not really God-centered. It is very, very difficult for your life to be centered and, and always tuned into and responsive to what God is saying and doing if your whole family has not learned to do this together. So I'm going to go ahead and say this as a disclaimer on the front end. I get it that in the church that there is a there's a part of the population and it is singles who when we hear that it's going to be a message on family that for many there's just like an immediate pushback it's kind of like oh, I wish I'd slipped in today if I'd have known you're going to be talking the family thing the relationship thing I get it better than I've ever gotten it because I've been single for more than 3 years now I get it singles let me just tell you I had no clue until I went through a divorce how much being involved in a church feels like being an outsider walking into a family experience every week. And I know a bunch of you can identify with that. How difficult that is. That it, it feels like the church was designed for families. And hey, if you single people want to tag along too, y'all can come too. Doesn't it feel that way a lot of times? I mean, it, it's, just, it's just this tragic thing. And, and married people. Families that don't intend for it to be that way, and yet there's something about church life that feels like this was made for families, and if you're not like a normal nuclear family with husband and wife and kids attached, then it's just hard to feel like you fit in. So let me say for one, if you're single, man, we are all about you. You belong in this place, and we are glad that you're here, and I are one of you. you know, we, I, I, I get what you feel. But having said all that, we, it's also... Important to understand what God is saying to us about how we fit with other people. And there are two institutions that God himself created, that God 
ordained as the vehicles through which he would accomplish his will in the world that he would use to usher in the kingdom. And they were the church and the family. And in order to have any kind of social order or meaningful, lasting impact, you've got to have both. Everybody here was born into a family, and it's God's design for everybody here to be a part of a church family. Now, all of our families look different today where we are you know, in terms of family life. It looks different for all of us. I live alone, but I still have a family. Now, soon I'm not going to be living alone, but you know, it, it, that's an evolving, changing thing. But all of us somehow are going to be able to apply what we're talking about today. We're going to start out as we're going to talk about this in two parts. We're going to talk about being God-centered in terms of a relationship between a man and a woman. Now, this we pretty much all share in common. You're either in a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex, or you're planning on it, or you're wishing for it. Amen? I mean, that's, that's where most people are. Now, there are some who have a special gift that Jesus talked about. It is a high calling that Jesus and Jesus alone is going to be the love of your life, and you're going to have a special level of freedom and influence if that's your calling. Man, we bless that. If that's where you are, we, we applaud that. Most people, that is not your calling. And, and if you're not in a relationship, you want to be in a relationship. So I don't care if you're not married. I'll guarantee you, you can apply what we're going to talk about today. And the truth be told, the folks in the, in the room and who are listening online who are not married right now, you've got the best shot at putting the things we're going to talk about today fully in place so that you take no chance of ever getting into a relationship that doesn't practice what we're talking about. So let's press on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So take good notes. And then we're going to talk about this in the context of parenting. And in that regard, some may go, oh, well, I'm not a parent or my, parent, my kids are grown. Look, my kids are grown. My, my daughters are 24 and 20. But God still gives us an opportunity to impact the next generation, whether you've never had kids or your kids are grown or whatever. I mean, in the first service, Jackie was holding my two-month-old granddaughter. Hey, I'm not actively parenting kids at home, but I am focused on two generations down the line. Now, I'm, I'm applying what we're talking about now thinking two generations down the line about a little little girl now. So whether you've got kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews, we all have a calling to impact the next generation. So I just say that to say I want you to think broadly about your family, your influence, and who it is that God wants you to apply these things with as we think in two levels about a God-centered family, a relationship with significant other and then with children in the next generation. So we're going to start with the first of those pieces, thinking about the relationship between a man and a woman where it's actually centered on Christ. Now, I, I will point this out to you as we're thinking about a God-centered family. I want you to think about a wagon wheel. Everybody knows what a wagon wheel looks like where it's got that hub in the middle and then it's got all these big wooden spokes coming out from it. That is a picture of family life. And every family is centered on something or most frequently it's centered on someone. Now, by God's design... He would be the center of the wheel. He would be the hub. That's how it's supposed to work. And the thing that's beautiful about that, when Christ is the center of the wheel and everybody else is connected to him and all of us within the family are pressing into him, what happens as each of us who are spokes get closer and closer to Jesus? What's the side effect of that? We all get closer to each other, don't we? We're, we're all drawing nearer to each other. We're getting closer as a family as we're living this life that is truly Christ-centered. But... Most families don't live that way. At least most families I've ever known. First service agreed. Would you agree with that? that? That most families don't truly know how to live with Christ at the center of everything. 
going to church and even taking all the time to read your Bible every day does not make you Christ-centered. That alone will not do it. So what happens when Christ is not the hub of the wheel? Well, I'll tell you what happens most of the time. Somebody else, someone in your family takes that role. And I can tell you who it is. You know who fills that role in your family? If you're the normal family, the most unhealthy person in your household fills that role. Think about that one. In a typical family that is not Christ-centered, the person who winds up being the hub of the wheel is the most unhealthy person in the family. And the whole family, because of their dysfunction, because of their problems, everybody else learns to deal with and cater to and tiptoe around and be sensitive to and not talk about and, and just try and learn to wrap everything around dealing with their dysfunction. And that can come in a lot of different ways. It may be a dad who's got an uncontrollable temper. He's a brawler. He, he may be abusive. Or, you know, it may be that he's got a drinking problem. And that's a central part of, of his role that puts him at the middle of the wheel. And now everybody walks on eggshells around him. It may be a mom who's hooked on Xanax or pops pills all the time or Valium or whatever. You know, mom who's this, in this major emotionally codependent role and who's not a healthy individual. She's got, you know, emotional issues. She's, she's got personality disorders and everybody knows oh, it's all about mama. We're all trying to learn to do the dance around mom. It, it actually may be a sibling. Sometimes it's a child within the family who, you know, they've got some set of issues. Or it may just be occasionally, or maybe not just occasionally, but I've certainly seen instances where it's just one of the kids in the family that for whatever reason, they got ten times a normal dose of selfishness. And it's just like, you know, we've got our own little narcissist right here in the family and it's all supposed to be about me and everything's supposed to be designed to make me happy and I'm going to throw a tantrum and I'm going to make everybody miserable if you don't cater to me. And so over time, without anybody ever saying it out loud, the whole family learns to revolve around keeping that person happy. And some of you are going, yep, that was my brother or my sister growing up and we all did that. I mean, are you right now picturing who that was in your family? Because some of us are going, mm-hmm. I know who that was. Sometimes it's that person in the family who struggled with depression or whatever. Their emotions and moods were all over the place. And every day it was like, you know, could somebody tell me what the, the climate is before I go in the house today? Because life revolves around this person. Do you realize how unhealthy everybody in the household becomes when the most unhealthy member of the family is the center of the wheel? Are you all with me? Can you all identify with what I'm talking about? Nobody wants to sign on for that family, and yet a lot of us were born into it. And the tragic thing is, when you grew up with a family that learned to cater to and dance around and walk on eggshells around the unhealthiest member of the family, we'll wind up growing up and tragically, oftentimes marrying somebody like that, or learning to relate that way, learning, you know, we'll help to recreate the family that we grew up in. It's time to break the cycle. And with God's help, we can break that cycle, and there's only one good alternative. Only one. Jesus has got to be the center of the wheel. We have got to learn to be centered on Him. How do we do that? Two pieces. We've got to learn to have a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex that is truly centered on Him, and then we've got to learn how to apply this with our kids. So first of all, thinking in terms of, of the relationship with another man, another woman, I'm going to start with what Jesus said in Matthew 19 as he's pulling back from Genesis about 
God's design for this relationship. And he says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. It is this wonderful picture that this whole thing between a man and a woman, it's by God's design. He wired you with an emotional desire for this, with a really strong physical drive for this, but it's so much more than just an emotional and a physical union that God designed you and I so that we would find incredible fulfillment in the coming together of a man and a woman in a lifelong commitment where we share all levels of intimacy and at a very soulish and spiritual level, we are united as one. That has all kinds of implications. I mean, we could do a whole other series on that, but I simply want to begin by pointing out that when you think about marriage, and there are plenty of single people who are listening, so this is really for you as you and I think about the prospect of marriage, the prospect of being in a meaningful, deep relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. What's the point here? What should we be considering and, and, and working through in this? First and foremost, when God makes a marriage, it is a union between a man and a woman that he is bringing together first and foremost for the accomplishing of his will and so that he gets glory. Now, what's significant about that statement? I'll tell you what's significant because when we evaluate whether or not we press forward in a relationship, usually our evaluation is about us. We put ourselves in the middle of the wheel. Do you make me happy? Am I happy all the time when I'm around you? Well, obviously not. Nobody's going to make you happy all the time. Okay. Do you make me happy enough of the time that I don't want to spend the rest of my life with you? Does the good about you outweigh the bad? That, you know, it's all this evaluation about me and the benefits that I get. When God looks at a relationship, his evaluation about what he is doing is tied to the accomplishing of his kingdom agenda, the doing of his will, and him getting glory. That's why you really can't afford to consider being spiritually mismatched with somebody who's not moving where you're moving with Christ at the center of their life. We're going to dive into that more in just a moment. So this is a union that is all about Christ and being able together to more effectively do what he desires than you could ever do separately. So how then do we create a relationship or take a relationship that maybe you've been in for decades and go from what has been normal and maybe dysfunctional and maybe really self-centered or centered on your mate? How does that become centered on Christ now? Four very practical steps that I'll point out that we all can take. And, and here's what I want you to do as we move through. I'm going to talk to you about seven things. Four related to your mate, three related to your kids. I want you to, to right now, just in your heart, to pause and say, Holy Spirit, help me to recognize the one thing. Would you just pray that prayer? Help me to recognize the one thing you have for me today. He doesn't have seven things for you today. They may all seven apply. They aren't all seven for you today. There is one thing. There may be one thing in terms of your marriage, one, thing's in, one thing in terms of your kids, but help me to recognize the one thing. The first thing that we'll talk about that's number one for a reason is if you're going to have a Christ-centered relationship with your mate, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancé, or spouse, you've got to consistently, you must consistently pray with and for that person. Some huge things happen when we do that. When we pray, don't think in terms of us doing all the talking, telling God what He needs to do for them. Remember, God-centered prayer 
is more about listening than about talking. The most important thing that's said in prayer is spoken by whom? It's what God says in prayer. That's always more important than what we say in prayer. So learning to pray for our mate is holding our mate before the Lord. And yes, feeling free to, to bring specific things before the Lord. But it's listening to God and recognizing that as I pray for my mate, God knows my mate way better than I know them. So for one, he's going to help me to recognize how to pray for them. But really importantly, as I pray for them, I'm going to gain insight into their life, that person's life, and into her needs, his needs. Because God knows what your mate is feeling and struggling with, what drives them. And God sees all the very best in them. Yes, he sees their failures. We don't need God's help with that, though, do we? I mean, we see our mates' failures big time. In fact, though we're not supposed to, we've got this running record of all of the things that they've done wrong that we've, you know, next time we have a really big fight, I'm going to whip that list out and bring it, you know, to bear on you. We don't, we don't need help with remembering those things. What we need help with is seeing what God sees when he looks at them. Because God sees the finished product. God sees what he's doing. And God knows what they need. And as you learn to pray consistently for your mate, it's amazing how many times he's going to prompt you to just show you, you know what, today he needs encouragement. Today you ought to call her. Just tell her just how much you love her and what a difference she's made in your life. Today would be a great day to write a note. Today would be a great day to send a text or an email that just lets you know that you believe in them to affirm what you see God doing in them. Speak truth. Bless them. Bring the blessing of God to bear in their lives. And the Spirit of God, as you pray for them, He's going to make you aware of their needs and their hurts and how you can really minister to that. So as you pray for them, some powerful things happen inside of us and we gain insight. But also as we pray with them, oh man, really good stuff happens then. For one thing, sometimes old adages are true, and there is a lot of truth to the old adage, that couples that pray together stay together because something really significant happens as we pray together. I'm not just talking about saying the blessing over the meal. That's a good thing to do. That's not really praying together. I'm talking about having time each day that the two of you really share your hearts together in prayer. And as we do that, our hearts really get connected. And there is just something incredibly attractive about praying with a mate and listening to them with a heart that truly cares and is burdened for you to carry you and your concerns and your struggles and your children and your whatever and to hear them with a heart of passion and burden lift that before the Lord believing God for what you need oh man you talk about stirring up just passion and excitement because there's just something big that's happening when that person is praying for you like that so it impacts us in that way but I'll tell you something else that happens things happen in the heavenlies when two people begin to agree in prayer together. You take two God-centered people. They are seeking the Lord. They are listening for what God is saying. And they're sharing together what they believe that God is saying. And now it's like, well, let's just agree together in prayer over what we have heard God say. And here's what Jesus says about that in Matthew chapter 18. He says, I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven, He will do it for you. I'm telling you, you, you begin to share with your mate. You begin to pray with your mate. You begin to listen to what God is saying to them and what He's saying to you and where those things begin to line up. And it's like, now let's pray in line with that. 
And Jesus says, you get two people doing that in agreement. They are praying now in response to what God is saying to each of them. And he just says, man, watch for stuff in the heavenlies to begin to happen. Things are going to shake loose. Things are going to be birthed as you agree together in prayer. Pray with and for your mate. Now, here's my question to you. As you evaluate your relationship, if you are married or in a relationship, how are you doing in this department? Is this a, a, a vital piece and if it's not, hey, today is not about beating you up and making you go, oh, what a, I'm a bigger loser than I thought I was. No, this isn't about playing biggest loser. What is one thing that you could do to make an adjustment in this area? Because this is a really vital area. And get specific. Don't be vague and go, well, I guess we ought to pray more. No, 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 that's, that's probably not going to get you there. When? When would you do it? How, how are you going to initiate this? And, and single ladies... If you're in a relationship, ever contemplating a relationship, don't you think that that guy, if he isn't willing to pray with you when you're dating, don't think he's going to suddenly become a spiritual giant when you get married. Look for it when you are dating. Because it doesn't get better when you get married. If anything, y'all know what I'm talking about. Second thing, you know, pray with and for your mate. And then this is so tied to that. Regularly ask your mate spiritual questions. Now, this can be just birthed right out of the whole prayer thing. As you pray together, ask appropriate questions. Hey, what do you feel like God is saying to you? Has God spoken to you in your prayer life? What is your heart burdened for? Here's a good question to ask periodically, you know, pretty frequently. How can I best pray for you? Um, yesterday, as Jackie and I were praying together, and we will periodically, we don't ask it every day, we'll periodically ask that question, how can I best pray for you? Now, I was trying to be honest when I answered. She, she answered the question, and then it was my turn, and, and I answered. And everything that I answered, quite honestly, was kind of out here. It was about stuff related to the church and stuff related to you know, family members. She listened to all that. She's like, oh, okay, I know that. I've got all that. But I was asking how I can pray for you. Tell me what's happening in you, what God's doing in your life. In your, how can I pray for you? Don't tell me about the church. I'm like, part of me hates that, but way more than that, I look. You know what I'm talking about. There's a part of us that's like, I don't want to think about me. I don't want to. I don't want to get down to what my heart struggles with. It's a guy thing in part, but you know that's really healthy to have somebody who loves you and says, I want to pray meaningly for, in a meaningful way for you. So tell me about you and what, what I can lift up. Tell me what your heart is burdened for when you pray. Tell me what, what you're doing in your quiet time and maybe what God's teaching you out of that. Here's one you can apply before you get home. Ask your mate, hey, did God say anything to you through the sermon? What, what really spoke to you? What did you carry away from worship today? Just God-centered questions that get us really thinking about and wrestling with what is God saying in my life? What is God saying in my, my prayer time? I shared with you last week that uh, Jackie was the one that God spoke to first, or at least the one who paid attention first in our relationship. I wonder how many times that's the case. That, you know, he may have spoken to me first, but she listened first. But that, you know, said, hey, I know that, that I feel impressed that God's saying to go. And just to begin to prayer walk the property of the building and the land that I told you guys about last week. And so she's like, I'm going to start doing that. And if you'd like to join me, feel free to. I love that, by the way. I love the independence of just going, hey, I'm going to obey God in this and if you feel called to that, great. But I'm going to do this thing because I feel called to it. And I was like, I think that's awesome. We'll, we'll do that together. And so 
we do that. We go and, and try and walk that daily. And uh, another thing, and boy, she initiated it from day one. She didn't have to wait for me to do it. We get through walking, and when we link back up, you know, she immediately wants to know, did God say anything to you? What, what are you sensing? What do you feel like God's saying? Whether it's about this or just it, it, we're, we're walking and praying and listening. And that's a great question to ask. I'm so glad to be paired up with somebody who's willing to press in and ask those kinds of questions. Hey, we, we're praying and we're listening, so God should be saying something. Talk to me about what God is saying to you. These are the kinds of conversations that we need to be having if we are going to be God-centered. Now, the problem, the really big problem for some is that you get in a relationship that's not God-centered in any way because your mate, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiancé or spouse doesn't have a relationship with Christ. It's, it's why Paul gave such a stern warning in 2 Corinthians 6 when he said, don't be mismatched with unbelievers. That is the right word, isn't it? Mismatched. Don't be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? If you are not married, take these words to heart. Paul is saying, don't you get into a relationship with somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Christ. It's, it's bad. It's way bad. I mean, truly. You'd rather have a diagnosis of, if you knew how it's going to be, you'd rather have a diagnosis of cancer than have to spend the rest of your life married to somebody who's not a Christ follower. You would have an easier time coping with cancer than you would coping with someone who is not a follower of Christ who's going to live under the same roof with you for decades. It's that difficult. Now, ladies, I'm talking to you more than anybody. Single ladies. Listening online, I'm talking to you. Don't you think that that sorry, low-down, good-for-nothing sucker that you were planning to save, that you're going to save him by falling in love with him and chasing after him and showing him Jesus. If he's a bum today, he's going to be a bum after you put a ring on it. So don't put a ring on it. Don't go out with him. I don't know what it is in the hearts of sharp, godly women that want to chase the sorriest guys on the planet. Stop. Please, you don't fix them. And it is not God's design for you to marry a man to fix a man. If He won't lead you in a relationship with Christ when you are dating, don't think that your disobedience is going to bring Him to Christ. And it is disobedience for you to give your heart to a man who has not given his heart to Jesus. Do I need to say that one again? You cannot... You're not going to lead a man to Jesus through your disobedience by giving your heart to a man who hasn't given his heart to Jesus. If, if women, and I, ladies, if you feel picked on, I hate it for you. But I am, I, my heart so aches and breaks over the good, it's not the skanky women, it's good godly women chasing after the skank dog men out there. It is, it is just pitiful. And it is time that we break the cycle. And I appreciate your agreement, but don't you applaud on Sunday and go out with a dog on Friday. Because it's happening all the time. You're wanting to lead him to Jesus, and he's wanting to get your clothes off. And that is the bottom line on this thing. That is exactly how this thing... You, he's telling you what you want to hear. Don't you, don't you judge by his words. You judge by his actions. 
And if his actions are he's mistreating you, he is not chasing after Jesus, and he is always trying to undress you, his actions are telling you where he is. You hold out for a man who loves and pursues Christ. You can't have a God-centered relationship if that person doesn't know God. It's why Paul said, don't you get mismatched with an unbeliever. Now, if I sound heavy-handed in that, it's not heavy-handed, it's heavy-hearted. I've watched people that I love, people in my own family. I've watched people who are just, just cultivating chaos, decades of chaos, because they won't stick to the truth. Romance is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing that can pull us far off course. And tragically, the people who are in the worst place are the people who are in a marriage with somebody who's not a Christ follower. Now, that is not a, that's not a free pass to say, oh, this is a mismatch, so I get the free ticket out. The Scriptures do not give you a free ticket out. In fact, they do the opposite. They counsel the opposite in that. If that's where you are, my heart aches for you because it's a tough, tough place. But you keep at the absolute top of your prayer list your mate. I don't care how mad they make you and how stupid their decisions are. Love them. Pray for them. You mobilize everybody in your life who loves Jesus to pray for your mate. God cares about that. God wants them to be saved. And you just you help to facilitate that. And you do your best to show them Jesus. Don't, I mean, don't drive them crazy with it, but you keep this before them. You know, we, we're, the whole point here, this number two, is about talking to your mate about spiritual matters. Again, you've got to find the balancing act in this of, of what a lost person can tolerate. But you, in, in winsome ways, do your best to talk to them about Christ. Keep this before them. Let them hear the truth and above everything. Pray, pray, pray for them. The third thing is seek to minister together as a couple. Um, there's a, a passage in 1 Corinthians 9. It's not one that you would often hear preached because it's a... Just nobody ever preaches this. It's one of those places where Paul is dealing with a personal issue. Some people in the church, troublemakers, are all the time giving Paul fits. And part of it is they're trying to keep put a stranglehold on him and say, well, you know, he's just in it for the money and, you know, we shouldn't be having to send our money to him. You know, it's just, it's just a money game for him. And Paul is just speaking up for himself. And he's saying, look, I have some rights as an apostle. I'm living out God's call in my life. And there is nothing wrong that I would be financially taken care of in this. And so he is defending the rights that he possesses as an apostle. And along the way, one of the things that he says in verse 5 of, of what he's saying here is, don't I also have the right to follow the example of the other apostles and of the Lord's brothers and of Peter by taking a Christian wife with me on trips? Now, first of all, understand he's not talking about Disney or going to the beach. When he says trips, he's talking about his missionary journeys, which were the most difficult Indiana Jones would shrink back from, from the adventures that Paul got himself into as he followed Christ on these missionary journeys. Paul was not married, so he's giving a hypothetical here. He's just saying, look, I carry all the, the rights that an apostle should carry. And he's basically saying pretty much all the other apostles are married except me. In other places, he clarifies that he's single. But he's saying, if I was married, I would not only would I have the right to be taken care of, but my, my spouse and I, if I had a spouse, we would have the right to be cared for as we serve the Lord together. And he, he throws in this one little verse that 
Most of us just run past and never see this. It's just an interesting little footnote. The other apostles, and he makes a point of saying, and even Peter, and even the brothers of Jesus, the half-brothers of Jesus, the other children of Mary and Joseph, became some of the most significant disciples of Jesus who were used in a big way in the first century church. And he says, basically, all of them, they have wives. And as they go and do ministry together and they're traveling, planting churches and encouraging the churches, they always take their wives with them. And he's saying that's a good thing. He's applauding that. And he's saying that ought to be a part of the right of an apostle, that that family would be supported. But here's the little kind of footnote thought that goes with that. They are doing ministry together, man and woman, husband and wife. And that's a really important piece. That a husband and wife would be able to do ministry together. Now, there are probably significant differences in gifts and strengths between you and your mate. That's okay. I'm not trying to suggest that everything that one does in ministry that the other should do. Sometimes that's a, that's a terrible mismatch. There are some things that your mate will be really good at that you just are not good at at all. So I'm not trying to say everything has to be together. But it is a huge bonus and it is worth pursuing that you would look for ways that you get to do ministry together. There's so many ways for you to do this. A lot of the things that um, we invite people to do in serving the Lord together through the church, we invite them to do as a couple if you're married. You don't have to be married to do them. But we, if, you're, if you are married, that we will just on the front end say we want you to do this as a couple. Terry and Beth sitting on the front row here. They, they are my small group leaders. They were invited into that role together. They're, they have very different strengths and weaknesses. And yet together, what they bring together is so much better than what either of them individually would bring. And it's amazing how much that draws a, a couple together as they get to share in that ministry together. Whether it's leading a small group or teaching a class or taking part in a mission trip together. I mean, think about the things that happen on a mission trip. If you've ever been on a mission trip, particularly like when you get, get to go to third world countries and where you just see God do miraculous things and, and you're so profoundly impacted by that if you've ever done that and then you come home and you try and tell other people about it it's a very frustrating experience isn't it and i can't tell you how many times i've come back from other places especially from africa where you just see such huge god-sized things going on and you come back and you try and tell others about the scope of what god is doing and they go oh yeah that sounds really cool where do you want to go for lunch you're like, no, you don't get it. My life was changed. God is doing things that you can't imagine. Yeah, that is really cool. You think you're going to go back? You know, you just you realize the person, it's impossible for them to get it. They weren't there. That's why it is such a big deal that for many of these opportunities that we get to share those together, how much bigger that you would be there and see God work through both of you and around both of you as you share in those experiences together. So... Look for opportunities to minister together. You know, um, I, I'm so grateful for everybody who serves. And it certainly does not diminish your ability to serve well if you're single or serving individually. I'm so grateful that you do that. And quite honestly, for those who are single people, Paul points out that it gives you a particular advantage because you're able to give so much more of a devoted focus on serving the Lord, your relationship with Christ and how you serve others because you're not splitting that time and, and serving a family, so I'm very grateful for what you bring to bear. But as a as a part of what meets up with that in ministry, I just think, and and this is a whole in in our ministry here. But when I think about like our children's ministry and our our student ministry to middle schoolers and high schoolers, how unfortunate that almost no one that ministers there ministers with their mate. And that, that in, in no way am I trying to diminish how much I appreciate 
the people who are serving, but I just think some of us need to be thinking more in terms of how we can serve as couples. And I, I say it using these examples because think how significant that is for children. Many children and many students who do not come from strong homes and strong families, they haven't seen a strong, healthy, loving relationship between a man and a woman who are committed to each other long term. And what a big deal that would be to get to see them serving together. So, hey, think about ways that you and your mate could serve the Lord together. That's profound and it pulls you together. And then the fourth thing that I'll mention to you is just giving together. Now, that can be another opportunity to grow together. Jesus made it clear you can't really belong to Him wholeheartedly and not bring your wallet. He says where your treasure is, your heart's going to be there also. If you're going to live a God-centered life, your finances are going to be centered around Him. And learning to, to do the whole thing of giving where you make those decisions together, you pray through and talk through that together, is an opportunity for you to really grow together. And to, again exercise this thing of God-centered living. Paul said there's this really strong teaching in 2 Corinthians 9 about our giving. And in the middle of that, he says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In that whole teaching passage there, he's driving home the point to not just be a minimalist giver that says, okay, if the tithe is the standard, God gets 10%. If that's what it takes for me to get blessed and not to experience problems, I'll give him my 10% and then I'm going on, you know. I'm spending the other 90% on me. And he's going, look, what you need to do is to really determine in your heart what it is that you're going to give to God, what you're going to give through the church, what you're going to give to missions to support the work of the kingdom. And do that joyfully, realizing that lives are changed and God is pleased as we learn to give cheerfully with hearts that are celebrating. Look what we're able to do. Look how we get to participate in what God is doing. And when you think of this in the context of a family, to be able to share together in that, that it's not just a matter of, well, you just write the check every month. You figure out 10% of what we make and you write the check. No. Talk together. Pray together. Make this an ongoing dialogue. You know, what do we want to give to the church? And beyond that, what do we want to give to support other ministries? Hey, you ought to, I want you to support other ministries. I don't want you to feel like every dime that you give, you've got to give to the local church. You shouldn't. I mean, I'm going to always tithe and beyond in the local church. I believe that's a biblical standard. But beyond what I give to the church, I'm going to continue to support ministries like Compassion International and Here's Life Africa, ministries that are really effective where they're seeing changed lives, to be able to pray with your mate about, hey, what do we feel like God's leading us to support? Where are we going to have an opportunity to impact others? We really grow together in that, and it's cool to just to recognize if God is the center of our lives, God has to be the center of our finances. So we, we take our finances before the Lord. Now that's about the, the relationship piece. Is everybody with me on that? Say, uh-huh, do this. Everybody, is everybody with me? All right. We're going to talk for just a few minutes now about God-centered parenting, how we impact the next generation and help them be centered on Christ. The first piece sounds really familiar. Pray with and for your kids. Again, recognizing that prayer is not going to God so that you tell God what He needs to do for your kids. That prayer changes us. You realize that? That when we pray, the biggest thing that changes is us. I mean, how many times when you pray do you hope that what changes is circumstances? And when we pray, the biggest thing that gets... I mean, yes, circumstances will often change because God intervenes, but oftentimes in prayer what's happening is more than anything, God's changing us.
And so when we pray to realize, God, I'm not just coming in here to tell you what my kids need because I pretty much figured out you've figured that out, that you know better than I do what they need. I am holding my kids before you. But really in prayer, I'm believing that as I intercede for my kids and I hold them before you, that you're speaking to me, that you're showing me what they need, that you're showing me what's, what you're doing in their lives. But in this, you're shaping me, you're adjusting me so that I can actually be more effective to be used by you in their lives. And that's important. That's a big deal. Now, we want to pray for our kids and we want to pray with our kids. And in this, we want to help our kids learn how to pray. Because you can't live a God-centered life unless you're a person of prayer. A person who learns to go to God and share your heart, but who learns to listen to God. There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And if you remember the story of Samuel, you know that he was not raised by his parents. From the time he was weaned, he was handed off to Eli the priest for Eli to raise and disciple him. And you have this great little story in, in uh, 1 Samuel 3 where Samuel had not yet learned to recognize or respond to the voice of the Lord. And one night, Samuel, as a little boy, he lays down to go to sleep and he hears a voice calling out to him, Samuel. And he gets up and runs to find Eli and he says, yes, sir, what did you need? And Samuel said, I mean, uh, Eli said, well, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. He goes back to bed and the same thing gets acted out again. Samuel, Samuel, he runs to find Eli. What do you want? I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Happens a third time. And on the third time around, Eli, who is more spiritually discerning, we ought to be, the, the older generation ought to be more discerning about these things. And he realizes what's going on. And when Samuel comes running to him the third time, it says in uh, verses 8 and 9, then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel did that. He went and he lay down and God spoke again, called Samuel's name. And Samuel said, just what he'd been told to say. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And God spoke to Samuel. Now, the next part in the story that's significant is the next morning when they got up. Eli went to Samuel and they debriefed. He talked to him about what had happened the night before. He said, tell me what the Lord said to you. Don't leave anything out. I want to hear what you feel like God said to you. This is so important because as we pray with our kids, and I'm just going to confess to you, of all the things that, that I was called as a parent to do in discipling my kids, I feel like the way that I taught them to pray may have been my biggest failure. Now, we prayed faithfully. Right? We didn't try not to ever let a, a day go by that we did not pray with the kids. It was my uh, standard thing when my kids were growing up was to pray with them at bedtime. We'd rehearse our memory verses and we'd talk about that stuff, talk about their day, and then we'd pray together but my biggest failing was prayer was always us talking we said our prayers and what i did not teach my kid kids in uh, that phase of life was that prayer is as much or more about listening as it is about talking what eli was teaching samuel was in prayer to learn the peace of saying speak lord your servant's listening now You've got to learn to be practicing this in your own life before you can teach it to your kids or as you're teaching it to your kids. But some of the basic stuff, of, well, hey, how do you do that? It's really as simple as this. When issues come up and your kids or your grandkids are asking you about situations, it may be just a difficulty at school. Maybe it's a problem in a relationship. And they are looking at you and saying, so what should I do? Great teachable moment. That's a great time to say, well, why don't we ask God about that? 
Why don't we ask God what you should do and what He wants to do in that situation? And so we're going to pray together, but we're just going to continue to pray about that. And instead of saying, God, here's what you need to do, we're going to say, God, what do you want to do? What do you have to say about that? And then when we get back together tomorrow night or a couple of nights down the line, I'm going to be asking you this question. What do you feel like God has said to you about that? Now, why does that freak us out? I think I know the answer to that. Because we're not sure God's going to say anything back. Amen? Too many of us are like, I struggle to hear God speak to me, and now I'm going to teach my kids or my grandkids to ask God to show us what we need to do and what He's saying about that. And it's like, we're freaked out going, I'm afraid I'm going to have to make up something from God, you know, for that situation. We can trust that God will speak. You remember what James 1.5 says? If we lack wisdom and we come to Him in faith and we ask for it, He'll always supply it. Teach your children to pray and teach them to listen as they pray and teach them that by praying with them. And that leads to the next thing. Talk with your kids about God's activity. That's what Eli was doing the next morning after this whole encounter when he says, all right, tell me what God said. Don't leave anything out. Let's talk about what, what God is saying to you. It's, it goes back to the same thing that we were saying between husband and wife, to talk about what God's doing, what God's saying, what, what's happening in your quiet time, what God's saying to you in prayer. And as you talk to them about God's activity, think of that kind of in two different realms. For one, talking to your kids about God's activity is in large part, it's about teaching them the Word of God. It's about teaching them about the activity of God, the historical activity of God, what He has done that demonstrates His character and who He is and what He's like. It's teaching them the Word of God. And just looking for teachable moments. It's what the Lord is saying through Moses in Deuteronomy 6 when He says, These words that I'm giving you today, they're to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. What he's saying is you look for teachable moments all through the day, all through the week. Don't just make it about church, although utilize church. When you're going home from church, hey, talk to your kids about what did you learn today and, and you know, wrestle with those things together. That, that's centered around the Scripture. Look for opportunities through the day. Create opportunities to, to read God's Word, to share stories from Scripture, and to talk about those so that that gets embedded deeply for them. Do you guys realize how little the next generation knows of the Scriptures? It is disturbing how lost they are in the Bible. To talk to them about the Scriptures is big. But here's the other, the other half of this deal. And, and I'm amazed at how seldom I hear of parents who ever do this with their kids, talk to your kids about God's activity in your life. They will learn so much from this. Talk to them about the story of how you came to Christ. Make sure they know your testimony. Tell them the story of how God led you to your husband or your wife. Talk to them about when you're wrestling with decisions about career or finances and how God responds to that, how He meets that need. Your story of God's activity in your life will have a profound impact on them. Uh, as I was thinking about this issue this week, I was thinking about my, my Papa Price. He is uh, with the Lord now. But Papa Price, my dad's dad, was, uh, he was the storyteller. Oh, if I have ever known a storyteller in my life, it was Papa Price. He was that guy. He loved the Lord, but right behind that, he loved telling stories right behind Jesus. 
And um, I mean, he could weave a tale. He always told stories that were based on the truth. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like the TV movie that it's based on a true story. By the time Papa Price told the story for the hundredth time, it was it had a nugget of truth at least in it. You know, he he did, he would tell you the same story so many times over the years, and it would get better and better the more times that he told it because it had more and more stuff added into it. But my favorite story that I ever got to hear him tell, and I could not count the stories I heard him tell in my life. My favorite story, the one story I will never forget, is him telling the story of how he came to Christ. He was a farmer all of his life. He was a farmer in Clayton, Alabama. He, he lived on just a small farm and just worked the land. And lived in a simple little two-bedroom house you know, until he finally had to be put in a home. Just, just lived that simple life on the land. And it just... So way over every other story, the one story that stuck was with me was the day that he shared about how when he was a younger man, he lived far from God. He didn't know Christ, and he lived a life that reflected that, which was so hard for me to picture because I'd only known my granddaddy that, that loved Jesus and who lived right. But he, the truth of the matter was, when he was a younger man, he loved to party, he loved whiskey, and he just lived a life that reflected that. And he said that was the way he lived until one day a farmer who had a farm, the next farm over, but there was a swamp between their two properties. And he said one day when he was out working the land, just in the middle of the work day, his neighbor, who was a follower of Christ, worked his way through that swamp. I have been in that swamp many times in my life. used to hunt down there. And we never would try and cross to the other side. It was too hard to get through. And he said that guy worked his way all the way through that swamp and came over to where he was and asked if he could sit down on a log with him and talk. And he said that his heart was just burdened because he knew that my Papa Price didn't know the Lord. And that he just wanted to come over and tell him about Jesus and what Jesus had done in his life and how it had changed him. And my Papa Price said, you know, knowing what he had to do to make it through that swamp to come talk to me that day, let me know what he was saying must be something really important. And he said, so that day I really listened and I really took it to heart. And he said, that day I invited Jesus in my life. He gave up whiskey and he gave up partying. And he was a changed man from that point forward. Now, you know, you may say, oh, that's a sweet story. That is a dear story to me because that was my grandfather. That is a part of my spiritual heritage. Your story is a dear story to your kids and your grandkids. Do they know your story? It will impact them. Let them hear it again and again. If you're going to wear out a story, wear out God's story in your life. You tell them again and again about what God has done for you. Tell them what a difference Jesus has made in your life. I, I love telling stories to my girls when they were growing up, and I told them every fairy tale I knew over and over. I mean, we would do the silly ones, the three little pigs and you know, Jack and the Beanstalk and all of that. But you know what I discovered my girls loved when they were, even when they were little? I would tell them the story of God's work in my own life, just, just my story. But I wouldn't identify it as me. And it would always be fun as I would tell them, you know, different stories in the story of my life, God working in my life. And, you know, it would be way into the story each time that they would finally be like, hey, I, I, I bet that was you. You're right. That was me. God was working in my life. Let your kids and your grandkids hear the truth of God's work in your life. Let them be a part of wrestling with and praying over Everyday needs, financial needs, and let them hear the story of what God does. And then the final piece that I'll mention, the third one, is 
Again, minister with your kids. Minister with your spouse. Minister with your kids. Paul said in Ephesians 6, Fathers, don't make your children angry. Okay, let me pause on that. You've got to take that one in context. Because if you're parenting teenagers, you need to make them angry. Pretty often. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say, if you're parenting teenagers and they hadn't been mad at you this week, you're probably doing a lousy job. It really is about that bad, isn't it? I mean, if you're parenting teenagers, if they haven't been mad at you lately, you have probably been slacking on the job. What Paul is saying is, don't exasperate your children. Don't wear them out with just constantly hammering them. Don't, don't be a nag in their life. But he says, what you do need to do is raise them with the kind of teaching and training that you learn from the Lord. Teaching and training. The teaching piece. We're going to teach them the Word of God. We're going to teach them about the activity of God, the character of God, and what He's done in our lives. But He's saying teaching and training. Training is hands-on. Training is get in there and do it. Now, we, our generation is well-intentioned when it comes to parenting. And with good intentions, we have cursed the generation behind us. Our kids are good. They are deeply spiritual people. But we have, as a group, my generation has almost universally esteemed as like the ultimate parenting goal that we want to make life easier and better for our kids than what it was for us. Well, for starters, was it all that bad for us, for most of us? I mean, most of us came up cared for, provided for. You know, it's not like we needed to raise the standard a bunch. But somewhere along the way in this thing, if we want to make life better for them, what we settled for is we just want to keep them happier all the time. And what the net result a lot of times is we just cater to them. And we try to not let anything be forced upon them that they didn't ask for and that they don't think is cool while it's happening. With the net result that, you know, as we're going, we don't want to turn them off to God and serving the Lord so that we don't want to make them do anything that they don't want to do. Will you remember this? We are all born with rebellious hearts. They are rebellious against God. They are self-centered. And we've got to train them to behave differently. And if you just leave them alone, if you just feed that, because we don't want to do anything that makes you unhappy or makes you uncomfortable. Let me tell you what you will raise if you don't ever let them be unhappy and uncomfortable. You will raise a grown-up, self-serving narcissist. You will create a monster. And they'll come back and live with you when they're grown, by the way. And make your life miserable forever and ever. Amen. The alternative to that is to train them, to train them not to be self-serving and selfish, and we're all born that way, to train them to, to live Christ-centered lives that, that are about loving and serving others. And the only way to train them to do that is to do it. You don't just, teaching them Bible stories won't get them there. It's a step toward there. It won't get them there. The only way to get them there is you have to train them through the experience of serving others. You, you've got to find ways that they get their hands dirty with you. First of all, that they watch you doing it and they get to be there to watch it. And then as they're coming up, then you do it and you let them share in that. And then in time, you let them begin to take the reins and you're just there to support them and encourage them in that. You have to find opportunities for them to do ministry with you. That can be as simple as you making sure that you go out of your way. That, hey, if there's somebody that you are concerned about and they're in the hospital or they're sick at home, involve them in the process. Take them with you to go visit that person in the hospital. Take them with you to go visit that friend who's, who's dying from cancer or dealing with this you know, major surgery and a huge setback. 
Take them with you. Let them be the one to cut the grass. Let them be right there with you as you sit next to that person who's sick and you just love them in Jesus' name and you let them be a part of that. At times when they don't feel like they have anything to add, it doesn't matter. You're training them. You're training them to live a God-centered life that is going to be about serving other people and they'll never learn it if they don't learn it doing it with you. Take them with you. Involve them in that. When Hey, go out of your way. When you're ever going to take part in a mission trip, plan a mission trip that you're involved in that you get to take your child or your grandchild with you. That's something you can do with them even when they're adults so that they get to see and experience stuff that takes them to another level. Hey, it's really cool that our deal is not done whenever our kids are grown. The last time I went to Colorado Springs and got to, to spend time with my older daughter, and it was really... A neat thing, Whitney and I were just talking. We were up late, just the two of us talking one night, and she started talking to me, and it was just one of those really cool things because she's been around ministry. She's been in ministry her whole life because we we involved her in what we were doing. She was sharing out of an experience that she had had that involved really open demonic attack on somebody that she was ministering to, and she was saying, what do I do? And here's what I did. And how do we address this? Because this is not broken and this is, this is not done. And so we had a long conversation about deliverance and about you know walking in the power of God, bringing the power of the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ to bear in that situation for that person to be set free. And deep into that conversation, she is soaking it up like a sponge. And she finally went, Dad, I've heard you teach on spiritual warfare a bunch of times in my life. But you just said a bunch of stuff you haven't ever said before. And I said, yeah. You know why? Because I'm sharing with you out of the experience of what God's been doing in recent years in my life. I'm just telling you what I've seen God doing. And she's like, well, I'm glad you did. Because <laughs> I, I needed that. This isn't theory. This, I, I'm trying to do what I saw y'all doing and I got to be there for. But now I'm the one who's having to do it. And it's so cool. It's an ongoing dialogue when she's 24 years old and that she's like, yeah, I, I want to do this, but I don't know all of how to do it. Help me continue to learn. Train me on how to do this. Doing ministry together. And there comes a time when you're not even with them. You're just reinforcing them as they're doing it. But it begins with simple opportunities. Getting to serve with you. Hey, we do small group ministry. Life is so much about small group ministry. If you lead a small group, if your kids are in an age group that it's fitting, let them go with you. Let them have a part in that. It may be that, that their biggest role is that they get to help with the other children. Boy, include them in that. Help them to understand how God's kingdom agenda is being accomplished as people are being discipled and shepherded there. And they have a huge role to play in that. If you open your home up for a small group or for a ministry event, don't make that something that you're apologizing to your kids for the inconvenience of that. No, God is at work in our home. Our home is a ministry center. This is a church right here. And God has given us the privilege of serving Him by serving these people. And we're going to make sure you have a role in that. Every time we clean these bathrooms and prepare this house and receive these people in our homes, you're not going to run off and hide in your room and stay far away. No, this is ministry. This is God at work. And you're a part of what God is doing. And we're going to involve you in this because this is our ministry as a family. Do you see how different that is for kids? How different that is from... Well, I know this is inconvenient, and our goal in life is for you to never be inconvenienced. Mm -mm. Our goal in life is for you to love and follow Christ. And He came not to be served, but to serve, and He gave His life as a ransom for many. So our goal is for you to learn to stop living to serve yourself and get to a place that you're willing to completely give your life away for others. That's a God-centered life.
Now, I ask you to pause and pray on the front end that the Holy Spirit would show you what's the one thing. What's the one thing? Not, not four things, not seven things. What's the one thing in your marriage, in your key relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend? What's the one thing in your parenting that really needs some work? It may be missing altogether. It may need some serious adjustment. What's the one thing? And are you willing to make that adjustment? We're going to go to the Lord together in prayer over that right now. Would you bow with me? Those of you watching online, would you join us as we pray together right now? Father, I'm going to ask you once again, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we don't want this just to be a shotgun message that we all walk away and go, well, that was nice stuff, and then we do nothing with it. We want to be doers of the Word and not just hearers. Holy Spirit, would you speak into each of our lives, help us to see the one area in a romantic relationship where we need to make adjustments that we would be much more centered on you and what you're saying and doing. For those of us who are parents, grandparents, aunts or uncles, involved in the lives of the next generation, would you show us the one thing that we need to press in? It may be that you speak to our hearts about a mission trip, a ministry opportunity, praying with, teaching, whatever it is. Would you show us the one thing? I want to ask you, without anybody looking around, how many of you, just with a raised hand, would declare, you know what, the Holy Spirit has impressed on me. I know at least one thing that God has put on my heart. I need to change. I need to start doing. I need to just, just raise your hand right now to say, yep, I already know at least one thing. Father, you see raised hands all across this room, people watching online who've said, yes, I know what God is saying. Give us staying power. Lord, give us the resolve to be obedient and to make adjustments. I pray that you would bless that commitment, that you would bless these changes, that marriages would be strengthened and renewed, that relationships with kids would be strengthened, that a generation would come up seeing moms and dads who love you and center their lives on you, that they would imitate that example. Lord, we're not going to make excuses for where we failed in the past. We're just going to confess it as sin. We pray for your forgiveness and grace now to live differently. Help us to live as a people who truly center all of our lives, our families, and this church on you and your activity. We welcome your work. We welcome the leadership of your spirit. And we pray these things in the wonderful, matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.